Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Today is Sunday, March the 14th. Thank you so much, Crossway Church, for having, having me over today. Uh, really, really encouraging time uh, spent with you. I'm always in awe of your leaders. You know, they work so well together. And it's one of those model examples. I always tell uh, my friends, you know, you want to look at how people work together, especially in organizing a service and planning it together and just that show of um, togetherness, again, that love. You know, I, I really, really admire that. I learned so much from being with you. I hope that I was encouraging a really, really tough message on suffering from 1 Peter chapter 4. But yeah, it encourages us. You know, this kind of thing that usually discourages us, suffering, God uses to encourage us that we belong in his family. So thank you for having me. I hope that was encouraging and that was uplifting for you. Um, also, thank you to the new friend, who said hello to me uh, while I was jogging. Thank you so much for watching this, telling me that you do watch this. It's, that's encouraging to me as well. Let's get on. Um, full confession, I almost didn't want to do this today. I'm so tired. <laughs> it's a combination of having woken up at 4 a.m. this morning to prepare for the message, having gone jogging, uh, also having uh, eaten lots and lots of instant noodles today. So I'm in a slightly slipping into this food coma. But, you know, this is a good thing. Maybe I won't comment so much. Uh, but yeah, always great to come together and to reflect at the end of the day at God's word. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, please, would you sustain me? Uh, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much uh, for that gathering at Crossway Church. Please, would you bless the reading to us, especially on this important subject on suffering and sharing in Christ's suffering as a witness to your glory. Help us to do this in our daily lives, to find things which are worth worth suffering as a Christian for and not to be ashamed of that, not to be discouraged by that, but to be encouraged to know that we share in his sufferings. Now help me as well, please, as I read these words from these four chapters, help me to be clear, help me to be faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive their contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil and lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be, it, shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out the wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces, one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. A cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which you pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So that the six branches going so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with, under, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. What is a calyx? <laughs> what is a calyx? Calyx meaning, uh, Google says, it's a, the spetals of the flower, typically forming a whorl that encloses the petals and forms a protective layer around the flower in a bud, a cup-like cavity. Okay, all right. So hence, uh, I guess, to hold the candles and the light and the oil for the lampstand. So it's meant to look like a flower, but essentially it's... Uh, cup that you that holds the oil for the light okay all right so there's a lot of construction here um uh yeah so it begins with this contribution of 
gold and silver and lots of materials, very expensive materials. Presumably, this is materials that they got from the Egyptians. Remember, they asked the Egyptians for gold and treasures. They gave it to them, and thus they plundered the Egyptians, God says. And so this material then is now offered for the building of these different elements of the tabernacle or the tent of God. And so there are three components here. There is the ark, there is the table, and there are the lamp stands. So the ark is almost like a coffee table, although that's very disrespectful. It's actually a box to contain the two testimonies, the Ark of the Testimony, verse 16, it's what it's called. It contains the testimony, but it's also symbolic of the presence of God. Notice in each of these, um, Moses is told to make them according to a pattern. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern or this kind of like blueprint of the tabernacle on the mountain, they shall make the tabernacle, which is the tent again, Tabernacle just means tent and its furniture. And the first chief piece of furniture in this tent is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. When I was a teenager and I first heard of the Ark, you know, I um, it was through Indiana Jones. I never actually watched the movie, but I heard about the Ark and I thought it was like Noah's Ark. And I didn't know it was referring to this thing. And it was just like a coffee table again, this box and I genuinely genuinely thought they built the ark of Noah and they carried it around in the desert but no it's this yeah about the size of this table actually of just a few meters long and it has gold on the inside and the outside again its main purpose is to house the the testimony the tablets of the ten commandments and it also has poles on the side of it you notice that on the table itself the poles um, and connected to these rings and it's permanently there because the ark was constantly moving together with the people as they moved throughout the desert the ark was symbolic of god's throne of God's presence with them. And on top of the ark, they had to make this thing called the mercy seat. Uh, it's translated here, mercy seat, but let's see what the footnote says. It's just a cover. It's sometimes called the atonement cover because the root, for, root word for that is where you get like Yom Kippur, day of atonement. So this is the day of atonement. And this is the, therefore a mercy seat or atonement cover for the, the box and it's made out of gold there are two uh, cherubim or angels facing each other towards the center it's meant to be and god says in where the faces are this is this space is where god will meet with you to moses verse 22 there i will meet with you from above the mercy seat from between the two angels cherubim there on the ark of the testimony i will speak with you about all that i will give you in commandment for the people of israel so it's almost to say that as if god is seated on this throne on top of this cover on top of this ark god's throne room almost is this picture of this ark and therefore again because this is a pattern of what moses sees on the mountain this is a mirror of god's throne in heaven god's throne over the universe but now thrown and throned between the cherubim and enthroned among his people he's dwelling amongst his people on the ark in this tent with his people through this furniture yeah Next is the table where they give offerings, where they put the bread of the offering on it. And again, it has rings on the side with the poles permanently there. It's covered with gold. And on it, they're supposed to put plates and dishes, verse 29, for incense and all kinds of different kinds of flagons. What's a flagon? I think it's like a, is it like a type of cup? 
flagon meaning it says your flagon is a large container with which drink is served. So yeah, um, so just lots of cutlery and, <laughs> and what do you call it? Um, you have cutlery um, and bowls in which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This is an offering to God symbolizing the different tribes of Israel. There were 12 loaves that were put on top of this table. By the way, one of the reasons why this is so clear in our mind is because 10 years ago, and I know this is exactly 10 years ago because I wrote that article on Exodus uh, 10 years ago and I read that yesterday and I realized, wow, this was 10 years ago when I studied the entire book of Exodus with my Bible study group. This was at the Chinese church. Every week we studied the book of Exodus for a whole year, all 40 chapters. And what we did for this particular chapter, I remember, was we did origami. We actually made origami versions of the Ark, of the table, of the golden lampstands. And I remember uh, one very creative uh, sister made the table and another brother made all the different <laughs> loaves of bread on top of the table. It was just a very visual reminder of what it was being constructed here. And these were all things that were housed inside God's tent, inside his holy place. The Ark was inside a inner place called the most holy place but all this was only accessible by the priests and the inner holy place by the high priest once a year so there's the ark there's a table finally there is the golden lampstands and there are seven of them seven of them each has seven as has six branches i think did i see seven Yep, seven lamps, verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Notice they're made like trees. And this is evocative again of the Garden of Eden when God walked with man. And what this is a recreation of in this holy space is therefore the recreation of paradise, the recreation of heaven, the recreation of this relationship that God had with his people. These lampstands give light, but they also symbolize that life that uh, the light gives, but also the life of these trees that were in the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, Jesus walks amongst the lampstands, and the lampstands in Revelation have that added uh, connection with the churches. They represent the different churches that Jesus speaks to and addresses in the book of Revelation. But here, lots of intricate work made out of gold and looks like trees again, and yeah, God gives all these instructions and he says, verse 40, see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. There's some symbolism for this that is mirroring something that's happening on a mountain in heaven, a reality that's now almost uh, crystallized in these pieces of furniture. And that's Exodus chapter 25. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to slow down slightly. Uh, I'm rushing because I'm tired, and that's what happens when I'm tired. I tend to rush, so I do apologize. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that jo Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means about noon, Jesus was crossing this region of Samaria, 
which is this middle region of Israel that was populated by their half cousins. So they were traditionally Israelites, but they had the um, enemy forces had conquered it and repopulated it, and so they intermarried, and so kind of like the population mixed, and so their religion also mixed, and so as a result, the Samaritans were people whom the Israelites tended to avoid. You know, it's kind of like North and South Korea, you know, uh, Israel in the South being South Korea, and then this North Korean cousins who were seen as slightly weird, has slightly weird understanding of God. And we'll see that when Jesus meets someone from Samaria. But it's interesting that in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through this region. That means it's almost like he had to come to this place, be in this place, and meet with this person in this place. And one of the indications that he's there is this well, you know, Jacob's well was there, and also that Jesus was tired. He was weary from his journey, and he was sitting beside this well, and it was noon, you know, the sun was at its hottest, and he was tired, and he was probably thirsty as well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food to go to Sainsbury's. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman for, of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, Jews tend to avoid talking with them. But Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is this, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus speaks to this woman who is surprised. Why are you talking to me? Jesus says to her, please, can you give me a drink? She'd gone there with her bucket to draw water. And Jesus says, can you give me some of the water you're going to get? Because the disciples weren't there. They'd gone to St. Spree's to get some sandwiches. And the woman goes, what? Why you? How can you talk to me like this? It was so shocking to her that Jesus would initiate this conversation with her. She, they were different races. They stuck to their own sides. But Jesus reaches across the boundaries and initiates this conversation with her. And Jesus answers her in a very interesting way. She says, you know, well, how dare you ask me for this drink? You know, I'm a woman of Samaria. And Jesus says, if you know who I was and you know the gift of God, you know, you'd ask me for this living water. You know, he would have given, you would, um, let me quote it again, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So not just water, but this water that gives you life. It can also mean running water, but even even so, you know, running water, the idea of an underground stream with running water means it's clear. It's not tepid, but it's clear. It's almost like you turn on the tap and it's running water. It's fresh and it's refreshing. 
And the woman doesn't believe him initially. Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket. The well is very, very deep. Where are you going to get this special living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. So it's not just that you have no <laughs> basis for your boast, but also our people are different. Again, she keeps talking about, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, but also that our people, our Jacob, our, you know, Jacob gave us this well. We are better than you. And so there is this kind of like cultural kind of competition going on in the background. She thinks she's better than Jesus because of her culture, because she has the bucket, and Jesus is boasting about things that he doesn't know anything about. At least that's what she thinks. But Jesus said to her, he doesn't give up. He's really, really good at this conversation with a stranger to get her to keep talking, and in the end, to get her to ask him for this living water. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water, maybe he's pointing to, well, this water, you drink it, you'll be thirsty again. Aha. Uh -huh. For whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And you know, this woman, you know, she must be thinking, hmm, crazy guy. <laughs> What's he talking about? But something about Jesus and what he just said here makes her go, okay, give me this water. Verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Because what does he say? Everyone, you drink this water, you will be thirsty but I'm going to give you this kind of water that will make you not need to drink this water anymore, not want to drink this water anymore, and your thirst will be quenched. You know, we live in a quite a temperate country, and maybe you've never really experienced that kind of hot, bothersome thirst and that throat that's so parched. You know, coming from Malaysia, coming from Southeast Asia, you know, this is a pretty normal thing. At the end, and it's almost a dangerous thing if you don't have water. And actually, that drink of water, when you do have that thirst, it just really fills you up. It makes you almost feel entirely different when you have that drink of water. And maybe that's what's so appealing about Jesus' words, this kind of thirst that is quenched. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is speaking, seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says to this woman who has just asked him for this living water, this eternal life, uh, water that he's offered her and he says go call your husband he changes the subject i just had the point imagine you know you invite your friend to church and after he disses you say oh, i have no interest in this finally you pique his interest so, oh i have this speaker is going to talk today about eternal life he goes okay 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 i'm interested uh, what time is it 
and then immediately you ask them about his girlfriend. And that's the kind of almost taboo thing you don't do with any kind of like non-Christian friend that you're inviting to church. But Jesus does that. Jesus confronts this woman with her past, with her shame, with even her sin. You know, God, call your husband, come here. The woman said, I don't have any husbands. And Jesus says, uh-huh, you have no husband. That's right, but you've had five husbands before this. And you have someone now who is not your husband. You have a boyfriend. And he said, what you said is true. He's just dug up and exposed this very shameful thing that she's been trying to hide when she says, I have no husband. But Jesus already knows what's going on. And Jesus is trying to find a way that is sensitive to bring up something that's very shameful. And the woman says, I think you're a prophet. You know, you can tell all these amazing things about my life, even though you have never met me before. And then she starts talking about religion. She says, my religion versus your religion. She says, our fathers worship on this mountain. This would have been Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And you you people, you Jews, worship on in Jerusalem, on, on this also built on a mountain. And he says, which is the right one? Who has the right right say? And Jesus does say that salvation is from the Jews. You know, he says, he says, you worship what you don't know, and what we worship what we do know. But he doesn't start out that way. He says, a time is coming when this kind of like mountain, mountain, religion, religion thing will be irrelevant. Because a time is coming when, and it's now here, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, because the Father is seeking worshipers like these. And the Father is, Father in which case, in case God, Jesus, Jesus refers to God as his Father, is not looking for a particular kind of worship, a particular right kind of worship, but he's looking at a particular kind of worshiper. For these are the kinds of worshipers the Father has come to seek. And then he says, verse 24, God is spirit, and therefore those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and Jesus says, that's me. I am he. I who speak to you am he. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, what are you doing, <laughs> Jesus? This is taboo, and she's a Samaritan. The same reaction that she had when he first talked to her, his disciples thought about him, but they didn't dare say anything to Jesus. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they all went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." 
Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything, all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's amazing, this woman runs into the city, and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she's talking about all the shameful things, all the hidden things she ever did. Now she's not afraid to tell other people about these things. Come meet a guy who will tell you all the stuff that I ever did. You know, that's not the kind of guy you want to introduce to other people. But she has now realized this is someone who offers her something that she's been looking for all this while, this thirst. And she's looked for it in things that she was shameful about these relationships, you know, five husbands and the one now not her husband. She's gone again and again and again. The same way she goes back to the well again, again and again and again. Jesus says, and you drink this water, you will never thirst again. You'll be full. And she has found this fullness in the one who's able to quench that desire and that hope and that search for that meaning, that happiness, that, that fullness. And she's able to share it with others. And they come, they meet with Jesus, and they say, it's no longer because of what you say, but now we have heard for ourselves, verse 42, we know that Jesus really is the one. He really is the Savior of the world. It's interesting that as they come to him, this crowd, Jesus then gives this analogy to his, to his uh, disciples saying, you know, there's this reaper and this sower. He said, you, you say, oh, wait for a while, and then there will be a harvest. But Jesus is saying the harvest is already here, and then these people come showing that actually the time in which Jesus has opened up the gates to heaven and brought all these people in, it's now. It's come with him. And all that needs to be done now is to almost like reap the harvest, to bring people in, to introduce them to Jesus. And Jesus will do that work of bringing people to faith in him. It's quite remarkable that he superimposes this picture. It's almost like a living parable. He says, look at the harvest, and you see all these people coming towards him. Verse 43, after two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had, too had gone to the feast. There's no time to comment on this, but just notice the <laughs> the weirdness of this verse 43 and verse verse 44 and verse 45 verse 44 she says in my own hometown there's no honor and therefore when he went to his hometown they honored him <laughs> it means that actually the kind of honor they gave to him was not the kind of honor that he was looking for you know jesus says oh when i go there they're not going to honor me because i grew up there and they know me very well but they honored him because the kind of things that they were honoring him for was because, verse 45, they'd seen all the stuff he did. They'd seen all the miracles. They'd seen all the fanfare. And therefore, they were welcoming him on a superficial level because of the new popularity. It's kind of like if your friends, if someone you know uh, wins the lottery and suddenly all these relatives comes out, come out of the woodwork, hey, hello, and that kind of thing. You know, that kind of not substantive, kind of almost fake kind of honor, simply because they want something from Jesus. Verse 46, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. 
And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he went down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The key verse here, and you have time for one verse, Jesus said to this man, go, your son will live. You know, this is a father who has traveled all the way. It's quite a long, long journey, actually, from Capernaum. And then he heard it. Uh, Jesus had come. He went to him and says, heal my son. And your son's about to die. And Jesus says, go home. <laughs> go home. And he says, but he says, go home. Your son will live. And it says, verse 50, the man believed Jesus' word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It's really, really hard. Jesus says, on the one hand, your son will live, but I'm not going to come with you. Your son will live, but you have to go home. What if his son doesn't live? What if his word doesn't work out? But what this man believed was Jesus' word. And based on this word, he verified it. You know, he says it was at the exact hour when Jesus had said to him, verse 53, your son will live. And therefore, he himself lived. He believed and together with his whole household. Why? Because he trusted that Jesus said that his son would live. And this is the second sign that Jesus had come from, did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Cool. So that's John chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is kind of like the introduction to the whole book. What is this book for? Is to give knowledge and prudence to the simple. Verse 4, to give prudence to the sim simple. Verse 4, knowledge and discretion to the youth. It's to give this aspect of understanding of how the world works, but also how to apply this knowledge It's in, in, in daily living. And the basis and the source of this knowledge is verse 7, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here the Lord is not just talking the fear of God, oh no, God, but or that there is a God. But the actual name of God, the Lord, means it's the fear and the knowledge of this specific God. You actually know God and you revere Him. And from that relationship, therefore, gives you that knowledge and that wisdom to have that relationship with the world, to do the, with, deal with the dealings of the world. And he says that the people who reject this are, verse 7, fools. Fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. So you find this contrast all throughout the book of Proverbs. There will be the wise person and there will be the foolish person. And it's not just the smart person versus the person who didn't go to university or didn't have a qualification. No, it's the person who rejects learning, who doesn't want to grow in their knowledge and their relationship with God. So let's continue on. Verse 8, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like shale, let us swallow them alive. And whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses with plunder, throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. And here's like a father speaking to his like teenage son you know don't hang out with the wrong crowd and by the wrong crowd it talks about these people who are inviting him verse 11 come with us and lie in wait for blood it means they're trying to trap other people they're using their smarts to try to entice and try to manipulate and to take advantage of people who are weak and the father says number one they're bad company but also he says they're a foolish company you know, verse 15, my son, do not walk with them. Hold back your foot from their paths from their, for their feet run to evil. And actually, verse 17, for in vain a net is spread. That means what they do, they set out this net. They want to trap other people. They will ultimately be trapped. That it will be their own undoing in trying to trap others. And again, behind this is behind is a God who sees this and who will judge all this kind of manipulation, this kind of evil doing. They set ambush for their own lies, verse 18. So ultimately, in the short term, you know, it will look attractive, but ultimately they'll be setting traps for their own lives and they will be ensnared by their own 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 manipulations. Yeah. And so here is advice from a father to the son. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of a noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. So she's, hey, you know, almost like one of those aunties on Petaling Street in Malaysia, you know, it's calling out, Tao Chong Soi, Tao Chong Soi, you know, trying to sell something. She's almost selling wisdom in the busy street, trying to call people to be her customers. Verse 22, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I've called and you have refused to listen. You've stretched out your hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but 
I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Here is almost like wisdom. This thing that you should be yearning for, growing into, and applying in your life, saying to you, why haven't, <laughs> why haven't you done this? It's almost like calling out to you, hey, you know, apply and live in a way that is fearful of God and just wise in this world. But people prefer foolishness. And that's kind of a trait of fools, you know, that they don't want to be wise and they actually want to remain in their foolishness. And up to the point when they finally do call out to, to wisdom, say, please help us, verse 28, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They always wait until it's too late. And at that point of time, wisdom will not do them any good. <laughs> they will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And so this is the kind of folly that does not want to grow, does not want to know, and only wants to do so at the last moment when it makes no difference. So yeah, so there's that, that introduction, there's that advice from a father to the son, and finally there's wisdom itself, all inviting us, hey, will you pay attention to this? Will you apply this in your life? Will you come to this book? And will you learn and grow and apply these truths in your life? Proverbs chapter 1. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We just had that actually as the closing benediction at church today. But here Paul talks about weakness, what looks like weakness, but is actually patience and God's power. It's when a pastor seeks to build up this church and is patient with them and isn't very, very quick and pouring out punishment, even though they might deserve it, you know, even though they continue to ignore his patience, it will look weak. 
And Paul is trying to say, hey, don't take this for granted. <laughs> That's why he says this is the third time. You know, you, there, there, there needs to be witnesses. And I warn those who sinned before. I warn them now. You know, while you still have the opportunity, I'm far away from you. I'm absent. I warn you now, as I did when present on my second visit, if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul is actually not wanting to pour out this discipline, this punishment. We're not sure what it is, but it sounds pretty severe. But he doesn't want to do it because ultimately his job is not to be the spiritual policeman. He's not going, going around, oh, you did that wrong, I'm going to punish you. But ultimately he wants them to repent. He gives them space, you know, I, I warn you first, please will you turn back so that at the end of the day, you know, what will make him most happy is if you are built up, not torn down. But again, the context of this is just showing that if you do that long enough, people will see you as a weakling, as a wimp. And ultimately, Paul says, you know, please, you know, you have to see, is this something that you're doing based on just human perception? Uh, or do you actually, are you actually Christians? Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Are, you, are your motivations motivated by your faith, your trust in Christ? It says, test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, earlier on, he talks about them living by the power of God, but he's always trying to reassure them as well. You know, Jesus Christ is in you, and therefore, you know, you are busy testing us, seeing whether we are motives, seeing whether we are authentic as apostles. You know, the scary thing is, have you actually checked whether you yourself are in Christ? He says, unless you indeed fail to meet the test. You're going around, you know, pointing out everyone else, sizing them up. Hey, sometimes the people who do that are the ones who fail to do that with themselves and maybe they themselves fail the test. That's why they're going around failing others by that same test. Verse 6, I hope you'll find that we have not failed the test, but we pray that God, that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. So again, that idea that, you know, to to them, you know, doing God's will, being patient with people always seem like you're weakling, that you have even failed, that maybe you even don't appear to them as val valid Christians. Verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. You know, it sounds like actually lots of parents and lots of Asian parents, they're willing, they're willing to uh, do the shameful, laborious kind of job so that their son can go to Cambridge, so that their kids can graduate and go to that amazing job. But they're willing to like drive taxi, do all the kind of things, all for the sake of them, all for love for them. But then one day the kid looks at, looks at them and see, huh, you know, you are such low caste. I've risen above you. And they've forgotten it is actually through their love, their sacrifice that they've gotten to where they are. And Paul says, it's your restoration that we pray for, not our reputation. It's all for your good. And we don't want to bring anything that will tear down that good, that blessing, that, that, that good thing that God has given to you. Verse 10, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is such a loving pastor who really does not want, he's doing everything he can to not misuse his power and his authority. 
and actually this church i think they would be more impressed if he was more manly and he was more you know more more bold in the way he talked you know maybe he pushed people around maybe they would respect him more but paul is just saying that's that's just not the way that's not the way that god displays his power and his patience through jesus christ and you know you're busy examining us maybe you need to examine what is it in your motives that actually desires this kind of response from your leaders it might not be something that comes from jesus christ it might be a worldly thing it might be a pride thing but it isn't a kind of humility loving sacrificial um, servant-heartedness that Jesus himself gives us when he gives us this ministry, gives us this oversight over you. So, yeah, again, he keeps repeating this idea of restoration. Verse 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Let's look at the footnotes or listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Okay, so he's coming back together. Reconcile, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one, one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And again, wonderful, wonderful benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, this kind of Trinitarian presence of God. He says, be with you. He wants this presence to be felt, to be known, to be experienced with them at all times. Be with you all. Yeah, and that ends the letter. And that ends our reading for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this abiding love that you've given us in Jesus, by your Spirit, and in yourself, in your love for us. And Lord, please would you enable us not to take this for granted. Help us to recognize you know, how your Spirit works, actually in weakness, in humility, and not look out for all these kind of worldly things like power, impressiveness, and even abusiveness but actually to commend servants who really live in such a way that display Jesus' meekness, his patience, and his love for his people. Help us to be such people as well to those around us, such that at the end of the day, we are able to test not just others, but ourselves, and know that Jesus really is inside of us. He himself is calling us towards this pattern of love and submission towards one another. So thank you for this. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for Paul and thank you for this letter. Thank you for this reading and thank you for today. Thank you so much in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bye. -bye.